Happy to have you back, everybody. Welcome to Ocean Solutions, a Noise Lab podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Reed Raven, a biogeochemist and professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In this podcast, we've been talking with inspirational individuals working on some of the largest issues of our time at the intersection of climate, ocean conservation, and human well-being. This 10th episode is the conclusion of our first season, which means if you've been enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe to Ocean Solutions on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts so that you get the second season when it arrives. Ratings and reviews also really help us connect all of our amazing speakers with folks all over who might be wondering, what's going on with our oceans? What can we do about it? And how could I get involved? And hey, while we're self-promoting for a minute, did you know that the band behind our theme song, Dust on the Radio, is also on Spotify? And that it's also me? So my band and I made this album when I was in grad school. It's called Halfway to the Stars. Why not check it out? Dust on the Radio. Thanks, guys. For the final episode of this season of the Ocean Solutions podcast, I was really hoping to interview an Earth scientist who, like myself, uses Earth's past to learn about its future. Along the way, we've talked with lawyers, planners, policymakers, data analysts, engineers, and activists. But I'll be honest, my personal love is really basic research. And so we're bringing it home to oceanography and geoscience research here. And specifically, we get to talk about parts of the ocean where there is no dissolved oxygen. Regions like this are expanding in many parts of the ocean as we speak. So today I am here with Dr. Raquel Bryant, currently a postdoctoral research fellow and a geosciences future faculty fellow in the geology and geophysics department at Texas A&M. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Raquel. Hi, I'm really excited to talk about anoxia and forams and just geology in general. Thank you. Fantastic. To get us started, could you introduce us to a big picture question or process that you're trying to address with your research? Yeah, so I am a paleo-oceanographer, and to me that means my job is to tell stories about ancient oceans. And that means as a geologist, I have a few tools to do that, mainly the rock record or the archive that the earth is constantly leaving behind, the sediments. And to me, since I'm a paleobiologist, what's really fascinating and the best tool I have to tell stories about ancient oceans are fossils. And in particular, I study a fossil called Foraminifera. They're unicellular protists and they make shells out of calcium carbonate. So they have hard parts and that's how they become a part of the rock record or the fossil record. And so a big picture idea that I'm trying to understand or the big story I'm trying to tell with Foraminifera is what happens to the ocean when it loses oxygen? What happens to our global climate system when it's really warm? And what are all the cascading implications for all the little critters and organisms that live in the ocean, but also for our long-term climate health of the planet? Yeah, so what causes anoxia in the ocean today? When I think about anoxia in the ocean, there are three kind of realms that come to mind. So the first is our planet is warming and warm fluids like a water mass don't hold as much gas. So 
no matter what condition it is, because of really cool things about physics, when a water mass is warmer, it just doesn't have the ability to hold as much dissolved gases, and that's any kind of gas. So a cooler water mass will have more oxygen than a warmer water mass. The second thing is this idea of eutrophication. So adding lots and lots of nutrients, giving nutrients surplus to the water column. And this is kind of a signal to primary producers to produce. They have something that usually they're limited by. They have a big flux of it and it makes them kind of go crazy. And primary producers have one job in the ocean that's to photosynthesize and create organic matter. And so it's not these primary producers that drive down the levels of oxygen, but they create all this food for heterotrophs the critters and other organisms that eat all that organic matter. And then they respire just like us human beings. And that's what drives the oxygen down in the water column. And when we think about today, a lot of different human processes like related to agriculture or you know, maintaining gardens and lawns, a lot of this has put a lot of nutrients into our terrestrial systems, which then runs off into the ocean. So that's kind of what causes eutrophication in our modern world. And the final thing I think about is something kind of more a big earth science idea. And it's our ocean is moving all the time. There's this big kind of, we call it a conveyor belt that circulates water masses through the whole globe. And when this process is disrupted, waters can get kind of stagnant. They stay in one place. When they get stagnant, they start to lose their oxygen. So that's another kind of inoxidant think about, just disrupting or changing ocean circulation. And all these things happen at different scales, different time scales, but also maybe something's more local, something else is happening to the whole ocean or different regions. But when you think about the Cretaceous, kind of all three of these things are happening in different ways. And that's why we know our world was really different. And maybe that's related to how warm it was. But we also know that we're warming our world. And so maybe every day we're inching towards a world that's more like the Cretaceous. What was the Cretaceous like? It was broadly warmer, right? It was really warm. The really cool thing that I like to point out to people is that we're used to having a North Pole and a South Pole. And immediately when you think of that, maybe some people think of like Santa Claus, but you think of ice, you think of cold, you think of big glaciers, whether it's on Greenland or in Antarctica. The Cretaceous, we have a lot of evidence that suggests that there weren't permanent ice sheets during this time period, especially in the late Cretaceous, the time interval that I study. And that might seem like, okay, well, it was just cooler there. No, it was warm there too. Like there's a fossil reptilians like crocodiles, fossil palm trees that were found at the South Pole. So not only was it, they're not permanent ice cover like there is today, but it was a tropical environment where animals that today we see being restricted in their range or types of organisms thrived in these locations. So it was a completely different world. And as a paleoceanographer, that makes me think about this global conveyor belt that I brought up before. The ocean conveyor belt is driven by changes or differences in density related to temperature and salinity. And that gradient is actually controlled by the glaciers at the North Pole and the South Pole. It contributes to forming deep waters and intermediate waters that actually drive, that kind of kickstart that conveyor belt. So when you think about a time when the earth was a lot warmer and there was less of a difference between the temperature at the equator versus the poles, kind of begs the question, how did ocean circulation work? What kind of kick-started ocean circulation then? Yeah, so today, right, in the poles, we have this 
formation of deep water on the ice edge. And you're saying that in the absence of that process, there's this huge question of how do you even start stirring the ocean? Right. So is this then, do you see the Cretaceous as kind of an end member, the extreme version that we really are going toward? Or are there some other important differences that you think would put us in a different scenario? Yeah, I think the cool thing about the geologic record is that we have different examples of warm times in Earth's history that we can draw from for different reasons. So a lot of my colleagues study the PETM, which was about 45 million years ago. And what's useful about that is continental configuration was a little more similar to what it was today. And there's less things to constrain and relating that to our world. But as you mentioned, what to me, the Cretaceous is like the end member kind of worst case scenario. If you look at the different projections of what our world's like, how much carbon we're going to be admitting. If we take the worst case scenario, we don't do anything. We just produce more and we keep burning more. What could happen? I think that's a really important question, especially when we're thinking about like building worlds in the future, understanding where we were, where our earth system has been, that's really the only way we can theorize about what can happen in the future. Was the Cretaceous hot because of CO2 also? Yeah, so there's different proxies for reconstructing CO2 in the past. There's different geochemical proxies. You can look at fossil leaves. And there's also modelers who kind of take all that information and use different statistics and cool modeling methods to come up with estimates of PCO2 in the past. And the conservative estimates are at least like 500 parts per million in the atmosphere. And at the very top, some estimates are more than a thousand parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. So yeah, elevated CO2 levels definitely driving a lot of the warmth in the Cretaceous. Although those are high numbers, they're not that high. They're not that far off. No, they're not. I remember when we broke 400, it must have been at the end of my undergrad. And that was like, everyone was acting like it was a big deal. And I remember being like, I wanted to study the Cretaceous forever and being like, oh, it's, you know, an extreme analog. And like every year at the end of my PhD, I'm like, we're at like 415 extreme analog. Like we're really inching towards this end member. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you like to know about the Cretaceous? If you could know anything about the Cretaceous? I would definitely want to go back in time with like a CTD or even just a bucket. I just want (laughs) a sample of Cretaceous seawater because I have this feeling that just geochemically, it's completely different than what seawater looks like today. There's a lot of unknown questions we have about why and how organisms biomineralize. So forams are biomineralizers. They make their hard part. And a lot of it probably has to do with the environment that they're in. And if you're a marine microorganism, your environment is just the water mass that you're chilling in. I want the temperature, I want salinity, I want the carbon isotope composition of dissolved inorganic carbon, the the organic matter, all of it. I'm interested. Cool. So before we dig into your methods in more detail, and they're super fun, so I want to talk about those a lot. What would we do with this information as humans, thinking about climate change, thinking about what's coming at us, making plans. Let's imagine we had a totally rational policy-making world. What might we do with information about the Cretaceous? Yeah, I like this question because 
this is something that I personally don't research. I'm really focused on just finding patterns of biotic change in the past, understanding the ocean more just in general, how it responds, on what timescales does it respond and react to perturbations. That's just going to be invaluable information as we creep more and more into this climate crisis that we're in. Because there's so many unknowns about how warming the earth will change locally, right? We can say like, oh, on average, the planet is going to warm one degree, two degree, three degree, three and a half. But what does that mean for Boston versus island nations in the Pacific Ocean? It's going to mean different things. And if we can't constrain how the ocean behaves in general, we're not going to be able to understand those really regional local effects either. And something that I've been looking at in my dissertation too, is the effect of rapid sea level rise on ocean communities, so marine life. Even though it's not on the time scale of sea level rise over a generation of people, understanding how that affects like productivity in the ocean, that has larger scale implications for fishing and actually like feeding people in industry. If we're not really understanding how this climate forcing could restructure ocean biosphere, then we're never going to be able to predict or make policy that protects people or centers the most vulnerable people when we're assessing like what the implications of warmer air planning could be. The ocean's behavior is kind of an unknown right now, and we're just forcing our climate system in one direction without knowing even the end member consequences of it. It seems like when you're talking about local effects, that this is a great transition into anoxia. We tend to, like you mentioned, see anoxia in these specific locations. How might we be able to recognize it? The big thing in the fossil record that tips people off to anoxia is the preservation of a lot of organic matter. The idea is if there's not a lot of oxygen in the water column, any organic matter that settles on the seafloor is preserved. It's not oxidized, not broken back up into its constituents in, in the water column. And there's some problems with that idea because it doesn't assume anything about productivity and how actually just the production of that organic matter could change. And something that I'm really interested in and want to get into, especially as a postdoc now, is how productivity and oxygenation are linked or are they not? A lot of times we just assume increase in productivity create that organic matter, drive down oxygen, not a lot of oxygen, preserves the organic matter well. Like, is that really a fingerprint for anoxia? Or something that I'm interested in, in the Cretaceous, does the biogeochemical cycle just function completely different? And we're looking at signatures of what anoxia looks like today on really short time scales and not thinking about how the ocean just could have cycled differently. Those indicators might be actually telling us a little bit more about changes in the carbon cycle, not necessarily oxygenation in the water column. Today, you can measure things like oxygen. That's one big thing that we don't have from the Cretaceous. So you can actually use a lot of different instruments. I mentioned a CTD, that's kind of like a cast that you can put down through the water column and see how different variables change through a water column. And so if you're doing that once a year, over 10 years, you can actually see oxygen declining in the modern ocean. But I mentioned in the past, we don't have that same ability, but something that geochemists are doing, I'm not a geochemist, but I love to work with them and read about their work. They can investigate redox chemistry through trace metals. So looking at 
iron and different speciations to reconstruct what the redox conditions were. So it's not like a perfect proxy either because sometimes the trace metals will tell you oxic, but there's a lot of organic matter preserved. So you might think anoxic, but there's bioturbation. So there are things living there. Maybe those things are anoxia tolerant, right? So that's why to me, it's just so interesting because Cretaceous is way unknown. We don't have that ability to measure it anymore. And it could have just worked differently back then. I think it's fascinating to think about this issue of scale right, where you might have a tool that works well on a modern system, because we're talking about these little tiny pockets of anoxia, and that the rules really could potentially be a bit different. In a very different world, you have different nutrient fluxes, presumably, different biology, presumably, and maybe a very large area that's being affected by anoxia in a, in a different way than we see on the modern earth. Yeah, and also in the Cretaceous, sea level was a lot higher combination because of, you know, warmer waters are more expansive. There's a lot of volcanism going on at this time. And ocean basins are kind of opening up continents are configured differently. We have one big ocean and kind of like a medium sized ocean. But in the Cretaceous, you have these inland seas that are kind of flooding as sea level is transgressing and regressing and cycling that way. And maybe they're not places where a lot of organic matter is being buried, but maybe there's big biogeochemical changes that are spurred because of this flooding that changes the whole ecosystem of the ocean. And it's cool because the earth has been through so many different oscillations. There's other times when like continental basins were flooded and maybe not yet, but deep time, deeper time than the Cretaceous is another, t another there's other intervals of warmth and also with these continents being flooded that anoxia looks different then too. Yeah. What do we know about the primary producers in this system? We're 95, 100 million years ago. We've got dinosaurs on land. How different are primary producers in the ocean? A lot of the primary producers that I'm familiar with are what we call calcareous nanofossils. I don't study them because they're super, super tiny. They're even tinier than foraminifera. There are still like a very big diversity of microbial life in the Cretaceous. And this is something I'm getting a lot more interested in now that I'm at a and And there's like environmental microbiologists in the oceanography department. But thinking about, for example, extremophiles on hydrothermal vents, this incredible diversity of microbial life in a place where to humans were like, why would anybody want to live there? That's the opposite of like sulfur and just acidic, like no, no way, but it hosts this really cool biome. I really think that anoxia is not the catch all negative event we think it is in the Cretaceous. Something about the ocean and the marine community kind of primed it for it. I think we certainly have a pro-oxygen bias as oxygen breathers ourselves. We tend to see that as the healthy community that would be desirable, but there's this whole other world, right? Of organisms that are perfectly happy to live under conditions we would find inhospitable. Yeah, and I mean, tied to the origin of all life as well. Like the only reason we have oxygen like in our atmosphere is because organisms put it there. That's not how our planet started out with life. Life began without oxygen in the atmosphere. It's really cool too thinking about is the Cretaceous ocean a little closer to our primordial ocean thinking about the limits of life. The limits of life are also interacting with your environments. Yeah. Okay so we've got a spot in earth history and we've got some rocks from there and we'd like to understand something about what that spot was like in time. 
Besides total carbon contents, what are some other tools that people use to look at that? You mentioned trace metals already. To me, a very big diagnostic thing I always want to do is look at the carbon isotopes of the organic matter itself, just to get an idea of kind of like where and when we are. I found that, especially for perturbations like OAE2, chemostratigraphy, so not just using the rocks to tell us when, but also using the geochemical signatures and especially the changes in the geochemical signatures to kind of tell us when we are. And I really like to relate that to the change I see in the biosphere. For my dissertation work, I was looking at Oceanic Anoxic Event 2, which was this globally observed shift in the carbon isotope signature of sediments and rocks seen all over the world, this big shift at around the same time. But also associated with that is a change in the benthic forams. There's a big diversity event and at times when there was no benthics before, all of a sudden, right at this carbon isotope excursion, there's a bunch of benthics coming out. So I'm really interested in take that one rock. Let's not just look at the forams or just look at the geochemistry. Let's look at it together and see what story can tell us together. Anything else about the organic matter that's in there too? Is it more terrestrial derived or marine derived? Are there any organic biomarkers for anoxia, for example. So there's specific microorganisms that use particular chemicals to do photosynthesis in the absence of oxygen. And so these are things like chlorobactane and isovernirotane. Don't ask me how to spell them, but (laughs) they can be a really great indicator of photosynthesis while there's anoxia in the photic zone of the water column. So you called those biomarkers. What do you mean by that exactly? There's a lot of different definitions of this, depending on what field of study you're in, but definitely for paleoceanography right now, biomarkers are like molecular fossils. So a sediment is not only made up of like clay and mineral, but there's organic matter in there, especially marine sediments. And so the biomarkers can be particular lipids that tell us something interesting. And it's another tool paleoceanographers use to tell stories about the ocean. So one particular lipid, if you center that lipid, it might be telling you how leaf waxes are changing. And that's telling you something about how much terrestrial input is coming into this paleoceanographic system. And maybe that's telling you something about the monsoon cycle. So that's why we call it a biomarker. I think about my foram bio events as kind of biomarkers too, because it it's using biology to mark a change in the geologic record. So how do you look at your forams? How do you learn things about them? I look at forams under a light microscope. And sometimes if it's a particularly tiny foram, another tool that micropaleontologists use is a scanning electron microscope. And so you can blast electrons at your little foram to get a really high resolution image of them. Something that I'm really excited to be doing now that I'm postdoc at A&M is using our imaging facilities to take high resolution images of my pick slides. So basically I get sediment, pick out forams, and I'm going to start taking pictures of them. And once you do that, you can start using software to measure them, measure their chambers. So all forams kind of grow these little chambers that the cell lives in and then moves on. So forams have really cool ornate structures because of that. But we look at how their chambers are changing, how size is changing. There's a million things you can do once you digitize things. So I'm really excited about the new directions I can take with that. Hopefully finding some better preserved specimens. A lot of my specimens come from actual rocks, not like 
mud. So they're recrystallized or deformed, not the best preserved foraminifera. But if I find some well-preserved ones, I'm hoping to do some CT scanning. Just like when you go to the doctor, it gives you this image that you can slice through and turn around and you can see the forum and measure the volume and get some more morphometrics. So there's some really interesting, speaking of anoxia not being necessarily a bad thing, there's some really interesting changes to forams specifically around oceanic anoxivant too, where you would think they're really stressed, they should get small or their chambers should kind of look irregular. But in some of my records, like during the peak of anoxia of OAE2. The forums look like so happy, like they're just chilling. They're big and their chambers are big and there's lots of them. So that's something too, I think using morphometrics can help reveal like how particular species respond to anoxia. Cool. So in addition to just who's there, you can also look at a particular type of benthic foram and see how its size or shape or degradation or other indicators of health change over time. Exactly. Yeah. Can you just describe real quick what these things look like? So they look like different things. A lot of people, when they first see them, say they look like popcorn. But if you think about a popcorn and how there's like different kind of bubbles like that pop out of the kernel, that kind of in a crude way is how a foram grows. Like they have their cell and they make these like sometimes spherical, more oval, more ovate, all of them have their own flavor, kind of chamber around that cell. And then as they grow, they have to make new chambers and new chambers and new chambers. And so different forams have different orientations that they grow their chambers in. So some might grow their chambers side by side and they end up kind of looking like an ice cream cone. Hmm. And some might grow their chambers in a spiral formation. That's kind of the popcorn looking ones. And right now I'm describing more planktic foraminifera they have to be concerned about floating. So their chambers have to be a little more inflated so they can stay in the water column. Whereas benthic forams, they can have a little hardier tests, but similarly, there's different morphologies, some that grow in more spiral shape, others that might grow kind of serially. You said you pick these, you are physically taking some ground up rock and picking them with like a very, very small tweezers or how does that work? Oh yeah. So it's the best part. I miss this part. You, just, you take a hunk of rock or sediment and usually soak it for a few weeks, shake it up sometimes, just kind of disaggregate as gently as possible. Sometimes we have to use more intense measures like rock hammers and stuff. But usually if you're working with like shale and stuff, they'll just, the water will just get in there and make all the clays fall apart. And then we wash them over really tiny sieves. So sieves where the holes are 63 microns. And the only thing uh, that gets left are bigger mineral fragments and are foraminifera. And then I look at it under a microscope and I use a paintbrush actually and water. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like static kind of thing. And you get good at it. I forgot that I've been doing it for like seven years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess I'm really good at it. But I love organizing the little fossils. It's so, if anybody knows me, I'm like pretty organized. I like to have things be like where they should be. And Mm -hmm. forams are the best for that because you can organize them by morphotype. You can organize them by species and genera. The planktics go over here, the benthics go over there, and they just all stay in their little squares, very orderly. But yeah, I use a paintbrush. And usually for like population analysis, you want to pick at least 300, maybe 500 foraminifera so you can get a real idea of what the community structure is. How long does that take to 
get 300 of these individual shells. Yeah, it definitely depends how fossiliferous your sample is. If there's not a lot of forams, I've definitely taken like cumulatively eight hours to go through a sample before. Mm. Probably a sample I should have just abandoned because there was not a lot of forams in it. But really, like, there's a lot of fossils. I've done it in 45 minutes before. Um, oh, okay. That's kind of fun. So if we went out to your typical ocean sediment today, you're saying there would be a whole bunch of different types of benthic forams all living together? Oh, yeah. I do this to my friends. So one of my best friends, she's not in science. She's a historian and a Black history scholar. And she went to the Bahamas and I was like, bring me some sand. Like she worked in a lab with me sometimes. She would be reading Abby at the microscope. I'm like, bring me sand. I'll show you forums. And mm-hmm. yeah, I showed her pieces of coral. I'm like, and that's a forum. That's forum. And they're huge. We didn't even need the microscope to see them because mm-hmm. it's so different than the ones that I study in the Cretaceous that are like teeny tiny. But yeah, if you've been to the beach, you've interacted with forums. They're there. So they can actually look like sand on a beach. Oh yeah, totally. Cool. Okay, so what exactly is the research project that you're working on right now with these guys? Okay, the research project, really truthfully, that I'm working on right now is publish my dissertation. Okay, that's an <laughs> important mission, yes. Yeah, there's also like a thing of being a postdoc. I'm really glad I have a fellowship so I can kind of dictate my own time. I need to like wrap up my stuff. But the project I'm trying to get off the ground is related to really exciting International Ocean Discovery Program, IODP Expedition 388 Equatorial Atlantic Gateway, in which I am one of the members of the science party. I'm a 4M biostratigrapher. We were supposed to drill off the coast of Brazil this summer for two months. I was going to be on the JR, the Joy's Resolution IODP's mm. drilling vessel. But in very 2020 fashion, it's postponed indefinitely. So Although I'm not getting brand new samples from the equatorial Atlantic region, I'm still trying to start a research project focused on that locality for a few reasons. The tropics are just cool to study anyway, because in terms of our climate system, it's a kind of stable place to be, right? It gets like the same amount of sun all year long. Seasonality is not as big of an effect. And so having a more controllable unknown locality is kind of interesting. The second real thing that captivates me about the Equatorial Atlantic region is that it's the site of the birth of the Atlantic Ocean. And so mm-hmm. you kind of examine how the history, the life history of the ocean basin from being like terrestrial all the way to proper marine environment. So that's just really fascinating. And then the third thing is there is a site drilled, it's Leg 207, kind of similar region, and they just had really great preservation of formanifera, like perfect glassy specimens, mm-hmm. really good preservation of organic biomarkers, potentially prime samples for doing these kind of integrated geochemical and 4AM analyses that I want to do. So trying to leverage the fact that there's already been work done there, people have already published like 4AM records or geochemistry records, even the other side of the baby Atlantic. So like the West African coast. So my project right now is just kind of trying to data mine and just like see what people have done and find cool ways to integrate it. And I'm really interested in investigating, like if we have these different kinds of proxies for anoxia, maybe some folks are using benthic forams, some folks are using organic biomarkers, others are using trace metals. When do they disagree? When do they agree? Do two work at the same time? What kind of patterns emerge? And 
maybe looking at them all together instead of just at these three desperate proxies. If we kind of say like, oh, what do all three of these proxies tell us about the water Mm -hmm. uh, mass chemistry? That seems really important, this multi-proxy approach, right? Because all of them have ways in which they might not apply, right? There's potential caveats when we start applying these proxies back in time, but if we can get a couple to agree with each other, we can sure feel better about our interpretations. Yeah. Uh, And perhaps they could even be telling us different things about the system. Yeah, and that's why I think it's really cool as well to have geochemistry, but also a biotic record. Because in a lot of ways, biology is kind of like one step away from the geochemistry in that these forams or the microbes I want to study, their environment is the water column they're in. I like relating the two because I think a foram is never going to be independent of the water mass that it came out of. And geochemistry is almost a way to kind of look into what are the conditions of that water mass? Mm-hmm. The whole cruise, we were going to drill at, I think, four different sites. And then we had two alternate sites. And one of the sites was a lot is a lot closer to shore. And it was going to capture near continuous of the last 20 or 40 million years. There's a lot of planning that goes into these proposals and picking the exact sites where like, no, we're going to drill there. Sometimes they even charter boats to do like sonar, like surveys before you can even get your proposal on the docket to be drilled. So yeah, it would have been really interesting to see like what we actually got. It also comes to this fundamental question about oceanography that you get one, maybe four, maybe 10 cores, but they are six inches around or approximately so presumably. And that's supposed to tell you not just about the ocean, but the ocean through time and picking the right site would be really important Yeah, and hard. (laughs) especially for the Cretaceous because our ocean recycles the Mm -hmm. ocean crust and so the oldest stuff is the hardest to find like the most coveted so that's why this cruise also really spoke to me because it was really front-facing like hey potential for Cretaceous sediment so I'm always interested in an ODP cruise that has Cretaceous goals. Oh, absolutely. We've talked about a couple of different things that you do right you pick forums What else do you do with your day-to-day as a researcher in this field, maybe under more normal conditions? Yeah, I was going to say, it's so different now because it's like just me. And I Mm -hmm. think ever since I started doing microscope stuff, like uh, microfossils, it's always been really collaborative. Like that's why I love working at the microscope. Looking at forums is so visual. I'm always like into talking to people or like talking to somebody else who's like picking on the scope next to you or listening to the same podcast together and then talking about it, that's like the best. I, I miss those days. Mm-hmm. And in general, just being a PhD student and working in a department and just being able to be like, I'm frustrated, I'm gonna go see my friend. Just being like on a college campus where other people are learning, that vibe, like I miss that vibe. And that, that was always a big part of my day-to-day as a researcher, just meetings with people, but also just talking to undergrads and people working in the lab. I'm back on campus now. I was working from home for a while. And I just walk in, I just feel so proud, like just to be at school, like I'm really lucky. Other people, you have to work whatever jobs. I know you said you worked in industry. I just could never imagine it. Like I just decide what I want to do with my day and it all revolves around learning. And that's just like the most neutral thing I feel like these days. And it's, I was like really proud of that. So I do miss like the people, but 
it's still nice because I think every geoscience department is kind of like this. There's still like little remnants of people, like, you know, whether it's like their rock that they use to keep their door open or like posters that are still up and like people's papers and like announcements. So that I really like that part. Yeah. What else do I do? A lot of writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to be more mindful of my identity as a writer. And I think that as scientists, we should just all do this. And people have been trying to convince me that writing is important for science, like since I was an undergrad. And I've always been like, whatever, whatever. And now I'm like, okay, I really understand that. It's like the way that we communicate our science. It's what really counts, especially if you want to stay in academia and like be a professor. And so I've been trying to just like say I'm a writer. And so a lot of my day as a researcher is reading and writing and making sure that I'm thinking and being intentional about how I share my work. That's a big part of my day too. Great. So what was your path to here? How did you get into this field? I think a lot of people always say like I have a non-traditional path or non-linear and I'm the opposite. Like I did everything like really in order, but it was still like different. So for me, like, I always liked natural science and just science in general and just figure, like, why are things the way they are? Why is there a mountain in my state and not a mountain in this state? Or why are butterflies flying and bats flying? Like, what? Those questions are just really interesting to me. But when I was a high schooler, my AP physics teacher actually had a PhD in geophysics, which is, like, not normal. But I went to high school in Connecticut. And that was pretty cool because she told us about just traveling for research. And I didn't know people travel for research. At that point, I had not traveled like really at all out of the country, definitely not. And so that just always seemed like something you do like when you're like old and rich, like that's when you travel <laughs> or like on family vacation or something. I didn't know like she's getting paid to go to cool places and like do mm. cool things. And so I just was like, well, I know I want to do STEM. I didn't know exactly what at all, but I'll just put this like on my applications. I want to do geoscience. I want to go places. And then when I got accepted to my undergrad, just one of the advisors reached out and was like, I see that you put geoscience down. You should definitely major in geoscience. So then I was like, okay, well, someone's telling me to do something. Might as well just do it. And from then on, it was kind of like, I was lucky because I had like a community right when I got to college because all of us like geoscience people were like, you go on field trips, you do labs, you just start like bonding with people. But then I remember like I was struggling so hard in the intro class. I like almost failed it. And the same advisor was like, hey, don't worry. I also almost failed intro geology. Like most people never have any geoscience before they come to college. It's like, it's okay. I have a feeling you'll do better next semester. And I just remember being like, this is awful. I'm gonna have to find a new major. Like I can't do this one. And she was so right. The next class was more like earth systems history. I used to tell my friends, like I'm taking a class. It's like E true Hollywood story, but the earth. And it's like all the questions I thought about before, like why is there oxygen? Why are trees green? All these different things. Why is there no life on Mars? Or why why would there be life on earth? All these cool questions. And I never knew that geologists like studied that I like I just I had no idea that like there was a whole field that you could look at earth's past like earth's history that was really eye-opening for me just to see that oh all the questions that I've wondered about my whole life people they get to travel and go on boats to study that and I was like okay this is so cool I have to do it
And that's what I love about geoscience. There's so many different ways to enter geoscience. Like you can be a chemist and just want to apply your chemistry skills to a different set of questions, or you can be a physicist who's great at modeling. And again, you just want to answer cooler questions because the earth has the coolest questions. So that was for me. I knew I wanted to do it, but I had no idea there are so many research possibilities within geoscience. So I'm really glad that I didn't get scared away by just like structure and physical processes. Uh (laughs) So we've talked a lot about things you love about the field. Are there any things that you found particularly difficult or challenging? I think as I'm getting more mature in my academic career, especially as like a postdoc now and someone who's very much interested in considering being a professor and going into academia, the one thing I feel like there's a big lack of leadership in geoscience. And that's not to say like people are like bad people or they're not leading. I mean, we don't have as much vision as I think we should for a field that is studying the earth when we're like in the middle of all these different climate crises. I think that we should really center leadership in what we're doing. Like our undergrads should be trained in leadership and we should practice bringing groups of people together, sharing different perspectives and making decisions together as a community. I just think it would make our students better advocates for geoscience, for not only the earth, but just the study of the earth. Like that's the kind of distinction. It's not about like save the planet. It's more like what is the role of humans in the planet? How does our planet work? And how are the things that we're doing right now, how is it impacting it? And how should we change our behavior? Like those questions to me are also connected to the human experience that I think it's inappropriate that we don't have that kind of focus across all geosciences. Like it doesn't matter if you're an igneous petrologist, mineralogist, like, you know, thinking about mining and like deep sea mining or mining in different parts of the world and how that's exploiting certain people. Those things are always connected. So I just think there should be more leadership included in our geoscience education. And it's something I appreciate about your podcast is trying to bring together different perspectives. All these different people interface with the ocean, right? All these different people interface with our atmosphere. That's earth science. It's all geoscience. And so I think we should be like leaders in all those conversations and definitely increase our relevancy because something that I find is most people, when they hear about geoscience, they automatically think like geology and then they just think rocks. And that's like not even a big portion of what it is anymore to be a geoscientist. Mm-hmm. A friend and me have actually like formed a community. It's called the Next Generation of Geoscience Leaders. And our idea is just using leadership to better geoscience, whether that's leadership in diversity and inclusion, or that's leadership in climate action and policy or it's leadership and looking at our fields and deciding like the human dimension of climate change is always relevant or the human dimension of hazards is literally always relevant. I would love it if more people felt like they had the tools and the support systems to stand up for the stuff they believed in. Yeah. yeah. Moving forward from the projects that you've already started, where do you see your long-term role in terms of academic leadership? I think COVID made me realize that although I have had a very linear path, there's just always unknowns and always changes. And I should be open-minded about what my next step is. To do that, 
I'm really trying to focus on my current step and make the most of it because then I'll have the most options when I'm ready to move on. But I love mentoring students and like a lot of us are funded by taxpayer dollars. So it's really weird to me that the idea of advocating or or leading seems kind of foreign because for me, it's so front of mind to be a professor. It's like to be a public educator, to be a public scientist, to be a scientist that focuses on broader impacts, that lets that broader impacts drive their research questions instead of like prestige or like them like figuring out the next thing. It should be like, what should the public know? Or like, what does the public want to know? Like those questions are not as centered in traditional R1 environments. And so I'm also like not sure if that's the place where I'll do the best scholarship. But then there's like a trade-off because, you know, if I want to work somewhere where teaching is more centered, then research facilities like decrease and then everything's kind of connected and resources and opportunities don't always match up. So something I'm also open to and brainstorming about is ways I can just do something that no one's ever done before and have like the best of both worlds wherever (laughs) I go. But that goes back to to my main project being writing my papers and making sure I'm making the most of my fellowship years. Right. Absolutely. I love the idea of doing something new. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what I like about the whole like proposal and grants. I know people like gripe about it. And I just said before, I don't really like writing. Proposals are the only thing I will always write. I think it's so fun to think about what you could do if somebody gave you the money instead of like having to be confined and constrained. It's like you're dreaming and that's like the thing I'm really good at, like vision and world building, theorizing about what we could do if we had this tool or this knowledge. So I love proposals. And my postdoc advisor is really advising me to think how everything can be synergistic. Yeah, I love to think about the ways that we can re-envision academia and research going forward. That's really fun. So if someone is listening to this and they think that this sounds like the sort of work that they would love to get into, do you have any advice for them? There's certain very generic ways to give budding scientists advice. But I think it's really important to think about the advice that we don't hear and like why. And one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is academia is not necessarily the best environment to grow as a researcher, but it is like the environment. Like you, if you want to do research at a university, you need a PhD or a national lab or a master's, whatever. People act like, oh, but if you love it, you'll be able to stick with it and do it. But I think what's really important is that you're doing it for a reason that makes sense to you. Because when you start as a PhD student, it's all more likely that your advisor had different reasons for getting a PhD than you did. And so it's just really important to remember that whatever reason brought you there is valid, even if none of your role models or anybody around you has that same reason. So for me, like a reason I got my PhD and I want to be a professor is because there's not a lot of geoscientists that look like me. And there's a school of thought that I should just do what I want to do, like focus on my research and like along the way I can help. But no, it's actually like the, it's like the reason I'm doing it. Research to me is a vehicle to educating people, to mentoring people, to being a role model for people. It's not the other way around. I always tell people like, just because you don't see the kind of scientists you wanna be in the available role models, doesn't mean that you can't just be that person. And just be weary of the whole idea of a role model and know that there's a lot of people who are put up on a pedestal for being good 
at playing in the toxic culture game. So that's like not necessarily people you want to even live up to. So just don't be afraid to look up to the people around you, like your peers. There are so many people who are in my cohort, like early career geoscientists who are my role models. They're the people that I'm trying to be more like. Think about the role of your near peer network in helping you form your goals. And don't just think about becoming, oh, I have to be just like the professor that I like or my PhD advisor. Mentors and role models do not need to be the big shot in the department. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been really fun. I'm really excited to put this one together. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Yeah, it was really fun. It helped me organize my thoughts a lot too, because like I said, I'm not talking to anybody these days. Ooh, conversation. This is fun. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this season of Ocean Solutions. I've had a ton of fun pulling this together and I'm incredibly grateful to all 11 of my guests who have really done the work here by dedicating their time and their expertise to finding in so many different ways solutions to the immense challenges we face, a changing climate, threatened environments, and the needs and interests of so many different human communities, which are just inextricably wound together. What I've taken away from this is that there are an enormous diversity of opportunities and pathways that all contribute to this problem in practical, creative, and sometimes downright exciting ways. There is a place for you in the quest for ocean solutions, and we need you. This is just the beginning. See you all in season two. It's just the two of us, halfway to the stars.